0: We have two amazing moderators here tonight. We have the executive editor of Gotham Gazette, Ben Max, (laughs) and we have Fordham Law School professor and progressive icon, Zephyr Teachout. (laughs) I saw somebody else describe you as that when I was looking up. Um,
1: So yeah, so I'm just gonna kick it over to these guys. You know, we have a a program that is set, so unfortunately we are not taking questions from the audience, but we have lots of the community groups who sponsored this event that gave their input and are gonna come up here and ask questions um, to issues that directly impact them as well. So thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Elisa. Thank you all for being here. Uh, Thank you, certainly, to all the co-sponsoring groups and the Queens for DA Accountability Coalition. Thank you to CUNY Law School. Uh, Just a quick round of applause for CUNY Law School for hosting us. Thank you. I wanna mention before we get to our six candidates who are here, the seventh candidate in the race, Mina Malik, is out very sick. She was going to be here, couldn't make it because of illness. Um, and for the candidates, for the candidates, I wanna draw your attention to Elisa, sitting in the first row here. D- did, I ma- did I mess your name up? Okay. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Who's our timekeeper, and our timekeeper will show you when you have, Elena, sorry, when you have 15 seconds And then to wrap it up, she's got those two signs, okay? So just keep an eye on her, and we'll obviously jump in to help you finish your answers if needed. Um, So we're going to have a bunch of questions from Zephyr and I, and then we're going to have our community leaders come up at different points, candidates... You're going to start with 45-second opening statements, starting with uh, Ms. Caban here, closest to us, and uh, please introduce yourselves when you give those opening statements, uh, and then we're going to have some individualized follow-up questions, and we're going to go from there. E- e- seating and s- Seated or standing is your choice. Anything you want to add, Zephyr, before we kick it off?
3: I just want to say thank you to all the candidates, thank you to all the sponsoring groups, and to everybody who is here it's an extraordinarily important position um, and one, a weighty one, where one has extraordinary power over other people's lives. So I appreciate everyone here taking this so seriously. Look forward to the debate. <laughs>
2: So again, we're gonna go right down the row for the first one, but we're gonna switch up who starts and and Zephyr and I will let you know who's gonna start each round. Uh, But we're gonna go right down the row here from Ms. Caban, but please introduce yourselves. I'm not gonna take the time to to introduce you. You can do that in your opening statement. And off we go.
0: Thank you for having me. My name is Tiffany Caban. Um, I have the flu, so bear with me. Uh, But I have spent my entire legal career fighting for these reforms. the playbook is out there. And cash bail, decriminalize poverty, um, it, it, discovery reform. But public defenders know how you do it matters. They know that when DAs come out with progressive reforms, there's an asterisk. And the same people that continue to be oppressed are still the exception to the rule. And what we need is the public defenders rubric for success. How do we decarcerate our city, reduce recidivism, apply the law fairly across racial and class lines? We need to listen to our communities. So when the sex work community excuse me, says full decriminalization, we do it because it saves lives. When folks say harm reduction and, uh, and safe consumption, we do it because it saves lives. When our communities say treat uh, gun violence as a public his- health issue, we do it because it saves lives. It's not a pivot. It is uh, a continuation of the work that I have always done, that I have always understood. So thank you.
4: My name is Melinda Katz. My entire career, I've been a fierce advocate the assembly and the council, and as the borough president for justice. I have the experience at Borough Hall and in many different offices and as an attorney to make sure that we not only bring justice to our courtrooms because there is no doubt that we need to bring bail reform, we need to bring discovery reform, we need to make sure we have a conviction integrity unit and we need to do all of that in our courtrooms starting on January 1st when we get sworn in and not wait for Albany to actually pass that legislation. But at the same time, I have the experience in Albany to be an advocate to make sure that the criminal justice reform is fair and is equitable and makes up also, by the way, for past mistakes. Well, we need to make sure that we get justice in the courtroom, but I think part of the DA's job is to make sure that people never get to the courtroom. If given opportunities, if risen up, if given the tools to succeed, people will do that. It's a DA's job to also accomplish that. Thank you.
5: Good evening, everyone. I'm Councilman Rory Lantzman, and I'm running to be the Queens District Attorney because our criminal justice system is racist. It discriminates against poor people. It doesn't protect working people, women, immigrants, homeowners, or tenants. As a council member, my work has helped hundreds of thousands of people avoid criminal justice system involvement. Thousands more avoid potential deportation and the evils of cash bail. For 15 years as a lawyer, I represented people who were discriminated against or sexually harassed on the job, people who had their wages stolen or were seriously injured or even killed in the workplace. I grew up in Flushing with my mom in our little rent-stabilized apartment. I know what it means to be on public assistance. I know what it means to be harassed out of your apartment. I know what it means to be powerless. Those are the people, my people, who I want to represent as our next Queens District Attorney. Thank you.
6: Good evening. I'm Judge Gregory Lasack. I resigned my Supreme Court judgeship six months ago to run for DA. I was the Deputy Administrative Judge of Queens County. Before that, I was an Assistant District Attorney for 25 years in Queens. I was a Bureau Chief of the Homicide Bureau. I was the Executive Assistant District Attorney in charge of 100 lawyers and. I intend to continue the work I did in the DA's office. There was no conviction integrity unit back then, but on my own, I exonerated over 20 men that were wrongfully arrested, indicted, or convicted for crimes they did not commit. When I take over the DA's office, I intend to continue that work and bring other reforms because nobody knows that office better than me. Thank you.
7: Good evening everyone, my name is Betty Lugo and I'm running for Queens District Attorney. I'm the youngest of six children born in Elmhurst Hospital. My mother came here from uh, Puerto Rico and raised six children by herself. My entire life I have been involved with the criminal justice system. I grew up in a very tough neighborhood and um, I've seen crime. I've been a victim of crime, my family's been a victim of crime, I've seen the harassment of police officers of my community and other diverse communities. But then I also saw that our communities are victims too and the prosecution has to understand different victims. That's why I became a prosecutor. I became the first Latina in the Nassau County District Attorney's Office in 1984. I worked at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office prosecuting with special narcotics, the Pizza Connection case here in Queens. I also worked at the Albany County District Attorney's Office, and I also worked as an interpreter before the interpreters were certified in a homicide trial in Rensselaer County, Troy, New York. The entire system needs help, Thank you. that's why I'm running. Thank you.
8: Good evening, my name is Jose Nieves. I'm running for Queens District Attorney because we need real change in Queens. I'm an 18-year progressive prosecutor. I've worked with the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, the New York State Attorney General's Office, and the military. I am a combat veteran, which served my country for over 10 years, and served one year in Afghanistan. I've served the community as a community leader for over 25 years. I live in Queens Village with my wife and my children, but I grew up in East New York, Brooklyn, where I saw crime happening on the streets. And I gotta tell you, it affected me in a, in a way that I changed, it changed my life. I chose to go into criminal justice, not because I wanted to charge or incarcerate, but because I wanted to change the system. I wanted to make it better for
2: everybody else, and we need change in Queens. Thank you. Thank you to all the candidates for your opening statements. For this one next round, we're going to go back in the same order, and then we're going to start switching around who goes first. Uh, So, Ms. Caban, this question is just for you. We're going to have individualized questions this round. You have uh, seemingly the most progressive, aggressive, do-not-prosecute list, plans for decarceration in the race at this point. Um, How would you respond to voters who would have concerns about your ability to drive down violent crime?
0: 45
2: seconds? 45 to a minute, a minute at most this round. Yep.
0: Thank you. Um, again, one thing that public defenders understand is this idea that when it comes to offending and violent crime as well as nonviolent crime, talking about not just individuals, but uh, individual trauma, generational trauma, community trauma, and we need to be starting to to talk about these things as, as public health issues. What we're talking about is not allowing people to continue to be hurt, but take the proactive steps towards making sure people are in a position not to hurt others, and that comes from a place of connecting with our communities, understanding that the communities that are exposed to the highest rates of of trauma and crime are also the folks with the least amount of access to services and understanding that throwing people is not the answer. And so that we need to be exploring how do we support our communities and families because keeping people in their homes with their communities is what drives down recidivism, what brings down crime. Thank you. Um,
3: We can, uh, what should we do with applause? Hold it. Yeah, (laughs) Hold it just so we can get through, uh, get through a lot of questions. We have a lot of questions. Um, um, Ms. Katz, um, one of the concerns that people have raised about your candidacy is the closeness to, uh, the, uh, county party and to other uh, political machines. Do you think those are legitimate concerns to be raised and what, uh, protections would you put in place in your office to assure people that there would be no conflicts?
4: The way you build relationships and the way you have a good district attorney's office that works with communities is to actually work in the communities so that you have a history. I am so proud to have supporters like Greg Meeks, like Danique Miller, like Adrian Adams, like people from across the borough. These are elected officials who have spent their lives dedicated to the betterment of this great borough. And at the same time, I also have a lot of union support, like the hotel trade workers and so many others that are coming aboard. Each and every elected official, each and every city uh, civic leader, each and every district leader, all the folks that have dedicated their world to making Queens a better place, yes, those are the individual people who have supported me. <coughs> and in addition to those support, those people that are supporting me, we also have a drove of civic so leaders. I just So do you think it's a legitimate concern? <laughs> no, I think that to have, I think it's over 50 elected and civic leaders to support me is a benefit. Because it shows me that I've done good things in my career. When you talk about the county organization, yeah, we've got, to, we've you need got to wrap to, up. I thought you were, I was answering your question. Yeah, sorry. I thought when you talk about the Democratic County Organization, you're not talking about a body that is one thing. You're talking about elected officials who have chosen to put the support in you for an office that you are right, can change people's lives. So I'm proud we have, to, have we have to wrap those up individual supporters. Thank you.
2: Mr. Lanceman uh, you don't have prosecutorial experience. You're running for a job that obviously is the top prosecutor uh, for the county. Uh, how important is that? And what do you say to folks who might be concerned about that lack of experience?
5: Well, it's very important to have... Qualified legal experience. For 15 years, I represented working people in state and federal court as a workplace rights lawyer, bringing civil rights cases on behalf of people who had been sexually harassed or discriminated against, bringing wage theft cases, um, litigating uh, serious injury cases, people who had been injured or, or, or hurt very badly or, or killed um, on the job. You combine that with the vast public policy experience that I have, um, especially in the criminal justice arena. All of the reforms that we are talking about tonight, and that we all want to do as a as district attorney. I've been doing as a council member. I've passed laws and held oversight hearings and, and funded programs that have decriminalized low level offenses, that have um, mitigated the effects of cash bail, that have protected people from deportation, that have funded wrongful conviction units in, in other boroughs. So, my combination of legal experience very, very sophisticated legal experience. And my public policy experience, I think is the right match, is the perfect match for the district attorney's office that we
2: need. to And just quickly, is there one particular thing that you are doing now or would do if uh, elected to be ready to be in the prosecutorial role?
5: Sure. Well, let me assure you that I am ready to be in the prosecutorial role. You know, we talk a lot about um, the things we want to do to mitigate the harm of the criminal justice system against people. And I respectfully would take issue with the characterization of Ms. Caban's list of decline to prosecute offenses as being the most robust. I think I'm pretty proud of, of mine. As Wrap well. up, please. Sure. But we also need a district attorney's office that is going to prosecute wage theft cases, that is going to prosecute deed fraud and mortgage fraud, that's going to prosecute landlords who harass people okay. out of their apartments. Thank you. That's relevant experience that I have.
0: Uh, Do I get to
5: respond when I'm not
2: right now? No, you, you'll, you'll be able to at, at, at different points in your answers.
3: Um, Mr. Lasek, uh, the Queens DA has had the same uh, <coughs> boss since 1991. It's 28 years. As you mentioned, you're deeply familiar with this office. But this means that every single senior and supervisory prosecutor was mentored and promoted through that office's particular culture. What would you do as a newly elected DA to change how that culture operates, or would you not do anything?
6: I was in that office for 25 years. I've been out of that office for over 16, 16 years. The office needs a fresh look, and I'm the one who's going to provide that fresh look. I know what works. I know what doesn't work. I know what people on that staff are competent. I know what people on that staff competency is less than I would accept. And I know the problems in that culture, that office, and I'm the best person to freshen that office up and give it a new outlook.
3: So in, in, in briefly, can you explain what, when you say you know the problems of the culture in that office, what are those problems?
6: Well, anytime time there's an incumbent in office for 27 years, uh, that's why we have term limits. That's why we have term limits.
3: Can, can you say what the concern, what the particular concern is?
6: Well, people get stale in the same positions. Okay. Bureau chief, uh, 10, 15, 20 years in the same position, they get stale. Thank you. Some don't get still.
2: Ms. Lugo, you uh, you listed a variety of things from your resume that you say qualifies you to be the district attorney. Can you choose one of those and explain uh, in a little bit more detail how it prepares you to take over this large of, a, of an office?
7: Well, I, um, I'm the founder of the first Hispanic woman-owned law firm founded at the One World Trade Center 27 years ago. As uh, Pacheco and Lugo, we represented the victims of the Cypress Hill Cemetery that were buried in garbage. We took that case on, although the attorney general's office or the DA's office should have done something about it, but we took it on on our own dime. We've incorporated numerous chambers of commerce Hispanic societies, women groups, um, diverse groups, from the Pakistanis to the Dominicans to the Colombians, every possible group we have assisted in setting up an organization, faith-based organizations. We've been involved in the community from day one, and that's what keeps us fresh and strong. What keeps me, I'm in charge, I'm the managing member of the law firm, so I manage the staff, I manage the cases, I manage the caseload, and I oversee just about everything, but I am an experienced trial attorney, having tried numerous cases, both criminal and civil cases, as a prosecutor, as a defense attorney, as, an, as a criminal defense attorney, both in federal, state, and appellate court. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Mr. Nieves, I'm gonna ask you a question. I, I received about 10 questions from uh, people who are currently incarcerated um, in Rikers from Queens uh, who work together to come up with a set of questions. I'm not gonna be able to share all those tonight, but I would ask all the candidates, I'll put them on Twitter online, to answer the questions that uh, they came up with. They're involved in a, a continuing education program. Here's one of the questions. Why can't defendants see the face of the indictment? Why are people prohibited from hearing the details of their case as it's being presented to the grand jury? Do you well, think that's fair? <laughs>
8: well, the law pr- pr- protects the secrecy of the grand jury. And the way the law operates, the DAs have to present the case into a grand jury under the, under the law of secrecy. Now, I don't believe that is fair. In fact, when I was a, a assistant uh, deputy chief of the attorney general's office, we did our investigation outside of the indictment, outside of the grand jury, because we wanted all the facts to be brought out into the public so that the families knew why they lost a loved one at the hands of police. And I think that's what we should be doing. We should be doing our investigation and our... evidence collection outside of the grand jury so that it doesn't become uh, covered in secrecy. And then we allow a separate system where another assistant gets present- presents the case to the grand jury. But the facts that we uncover in our investigation are made public, and, are, and the families can know what happened to their loved one, or the families can know what happened in the crime. And if the public wants to know, they can see what exactly we did as district attorneys to investigate
2: that crime. Thanks. Thank you all the candidates for answering those. This, this question is going to go to just about every candidate, um, and we're going to start with Mr. Lanceman And we're going to work uh, in the same direction, but we'll change that up. Like I said, we're going to change different rounds and who starts first. Uh, but starting with Mr. Lanceman, how do you explain to someone uh, who's not familiar, someone in the audience here perhaps, how the district attorney's office works on a daily basis?
5: Well, you start with the concept and understanding of a district attorney's office as more than just the place that processes the cases that the police bring. The district attorney is the individual responsible for public safety in the entire borough of Queens. Part of that is prosecuting people who've committed crimes. A big part of that is not prosecuting people who are in the criminal justice system because they have a mental illness or they have um, drug addiction or they're in the system because of their, their poverty. It's also about preventing crime. The district attorneys of Queens, District Attorney's Office in Queens has over a hundred million dollars in asset forfeiture funds that could be used with community organizations to prevent crime. So I would tell anyone who or asked me, what does the district attorney's office do on a daily basis? Across a multiple, multiple of multiple of, 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 uh, of facets and spectrum, the district attorney keeps Queens safe and the people of Queens safe from the criminal justice system itself.
2: Thank you, Mr. Lasek.
6: The district attorney's office is the, well the DA is the chief law enforcement official of the county. They have about six different divisions, approximately 15 different bureaus, and each one handles a certain specific area of the crime. And most of the cases are handled through the police department, and the DA's office, they have their own investigations division, which in itself has about six bureaus in it, and they start their own investigations based on complaints from the public, complaints from citizens, and they work together with the police department and their own detectives. They have their own detective squad in the DA's office, and they do that on a daily basis. They handle about 50,000 arrests a year, and as I said, there's about six divisions in that office. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Ms. Lugo.
7: The, well, as, as it's the duty and responsibility of the Queens District Attorney's Office to represent all of the people of the state of New York, the county of Queens. That includes the victims and the accused, and to consider their family. So... True justice for all is my theme, and that means that you encompass and understand the complexities of the whole system. As a DA, um, you have to set policy within your office. What cases are going to be plea bargained? What cases are going to be prosecuted? You have to um, lobby for funding for different programs with the federal government, with the state government, with different private organizations. You have to be prepared to do that, something that I've done all my life. You have to... um, make sure that the office runs smoothly and that people understand what they're doing so I, diversity and inclusion are primary, my primary goal with the Queens District Attorney's Office. And what do I mean is education and outreach to all organizations, all communities. Let them know what the DA's office is all about. Oftentimes our communities don't know what the DA's office is. Thank you. Until somebody gets in trouble. So I would make sure that, every, that the office looks like the communities they represent. Thank you.
2: Mr. Nieves. The DA's office is Minister of Justice.
8: By that, I mean the DA's office is in charge of protecting people's rights, protecting the individuals that are victims of crimes, witnesses of crimes and the public from those who harm others in, in the county. So as ministers of justice, we have to be able to do the job, know, have the experience to do the job, have the years of, of experience in the field to know what cases should be charged, how those cases should be charged, and when do we look at mitigation and extenuation? When do we look at the circumstances of the defendant when we decide what the outcome of the case will be? When do we look at the impact of the community when we decide
2: what the plea should be? Those, Excuse me, Excuse me. sorry. A lot of that is is broad policy, but on a daily basis, how are those decisions made? Those decisions are made by the
8: district attorney. And the policies that the policies that he he makes, and that's why it's so important to have somebody experienced at the at the helm. Because when you have a high profile case like an individual who is shot or a police officer who is shot in the course of a robbery, that decision is not made by the assistant district attorney. That decision is made by the district himself, district attorney himself. And if he doesn't have the experience with homicides, how to investigate homicides, how to prosecute a homicide, how is that person going to make that decision? He's
2: not. Oh, she's not. Thank you. Ms. Caban.
0: Thank you. Um, How does the DA's office currently work on a daily basis? On a daily basis, currently, we're talking about a system that, because of those metrics of success of convictions and sentences, we're dealing with gamesmanship that results in overcharging, withholding of evidence, uh, coerced pleas, rather than just asking what the office should be, right? Finding out how do we make sure this thing doesn't happen again and how do we keep our community safer in actuality and changing those metrics of success to being you are successful, you are doing your job if you reduce recidivism, if you decarcerate our city, and if you apply the law fairly across racial and class lines, when you do those things, All of the other reforms will follow. Beyond that, when we talk about the job of the DA's office and keeping our community safe, it means engaging in preventative care. It means making sure that we are providing people with the things that they need rather than spending all of our time, energy, money, and resources in our prison industrial complex, something that does not work has not worked.
2: Thank you, and Ms. Katz.
4: The district Attorney's office is a leadership position. On day one, my administration will call for no cash bail by my ADAs. There's 530 employees of the District Attorney's office at a $64 million budget. Everything needs to be set by policy. So on day one, no cash bail. On day two, discovery reform that is going to be you show me you show the defendant the evidence against them so that they can actually make a learned plea bargain. Because let me tell you something, I know I'm gonna have ADAs that are really good at their job. They should be able to get fair prosecutions while the defendant knows every bit of evidence that is against them at the very beginning. Number three, we need to set up a conviction integrity unit in that office to make sure that any past convictions are looked at with defense attorneys, with any of the agencies that want to be part of it, and especially with a different ADA that actually did the original um, prosecution. But. The 530 employees in that office, on a daily basis, they need to carry out the programs and the policy that I institute in that office, and they need to make sure that we get justice not only in the office, in the courtrooms, but also work to get it outside as well.
2: Thank you. gonna turn it over to Zephyr for the next question. I believe we're gonna start with...
3: I think I'll start with, uh, I'm starting with Katz and going to Caban Yeva's, sort of the same. So, just back up and down. Um, so this is a question about an approach towards violent crime. There are currently over 30,000 people in prison just for violence in New York State, which is 50% more than the entire state prison population in 1978. New York has experienced one of the longest declines in prison populations in the country, starting in 99, driven almost entirely by reductions in uh, property in, uh, prosecutions for property and drug offenses. So the violent crime rate has dropped 60% in the past 20 years, but the number of people locked up in New York prisons for violence has not changed. As my colleague John Pfaff at Fordham Law School has argued, any sort of real decarceration in New York necessarily means changing how we punish violent crimes. What changes, if any, would you make in the current approach towards prosecuting and sentencing violent crime? Be specific.
4: So first of all, the way the criminal justice system is set up right now, it it disproportionately affects people of color. There's just no doubt about it. And it's not an opinion, it's a fact. It's in every study that we have. So we need to make sure that the office is fairly and equitably prosecuting crimes while also making sure that they are fair and just during the trial. I think you can have fair prosecutions, but you need to make sure that we have system in place where violent offenders have ATIs as much as they possibly can. We need to make sure that we have drug rehabilitation. We need to make sure that we have mental illness help, because a lot of folks need that when they're going into the system. But more importantly than anything else, we need to make sure that violent crimes are diverted as much as we possibly can. You start that with a lot of the groups we have in Queens. I see Kay Bain here from 696. We have Life Camp that has done a lot of uh, intervention programs in the borough. We have TSI that works with a lot of the folks in the in the community. We have We've done Fathers up. Alive in the Hood. But you have to start at the community, with the community. And by the way, it has to be to, in partnership so you don't go in and then leave everybody there. Ms. Gabon.
0: Yes, thank you. Um, so, approach towards violent crime, we have to start dealing with that health issue. Um, Beyond that, what we know is that when we use credible uh, programming like the Cure Violence model, that when we ask communities, how do you want to approach gun violence, for example, and uh, ask them how we want to inject credible messengers into neighborhoods, that gun violence and violence in general goes down by upwards of 30 to 40%. These are things that work. We prevent it in the first place. But beyond that, again, we start thinking of folks as survivors and victims of trauma themselves when they engage in harm towards others. I have had clients who engage in a lot of assaults of behavior and keep getting thrown back in jail for increasingly num- longer sentences, and it doesn't work. And the difference between my client and me, for example, in terms of my trauma history and what I've been exposed to is having had the privilege and the luck to have access to supportive services like therapy and partners who have been patient and kind um, to me, and that being the difference maker and saying, hey, We're to wrap up, <clears throat> understanding that folks need the support to get the tools in their toolbox to engage in different behaviors. Um, Mr. Nieves.
8: So I think that the DA's office has to practice a restraint in charging. Many times what happens is we overcharge cases on hopes to plead bargain um, the case for a lesser included. I think we need to start looking at the, uh, the criminal conduct and actually charging it appropriately. And on top of that, we need to start engaging in more alternative to incarceration programs, diversion programs, because a lot of these in- individuals have underlying issues that drive the misconduct, drive the, the divide, violence that they're engaging in. And if without addressing that underlying issue, then we're just creating a revolving door. The individuals coming into the system, being incarcerated, being released to the community that they came from 95% of the time, and then feeling hopeless and engaging in further misconduct. And I think that's, that's, for the DA's office, that's something we have to look at very carefully. And we have to make sure that we use alternative to incarceration programs, diversion programs, which means that we we have to evaluate every person that comes into a system to see what type of mental health I- issues and other issues that they have in order to provide those services, whether it be outside of incarceration or in incarceration.
7: Yes, yeah, I wrap up. Hi. Um, well, you, ha- you have to understand the entire complexity of what's the violent crime, the family, OK? I've been a victim of violent crime. My mother um, was was a victim of domestic violence by my father. So hands-on is how I would approach it. And I would hire the best psychologists, social workers, therapists for my victims. Right now Safe Horizon does not assist victims of crime that do- doesn't have to do with domestic violence. I have a case right now where a young mother was beat up by another woman right in front of school while her, while her children watched. Safe Horizon cannot help her, cannot take her away from where she lives, even though the defendant lives right across the street from her. So clearly, the DA's office has to be hands-on and not just deal with it at the prosecution level. So after the crime is committed, look at the victim and follow the victim and make sure they get the services they need. Thank you. (coughs)
3: Um, Mr. Lisek.
6: (sighs) One of the bureaus that came under my division was the Domestic Violence Bureau, which I created in the mid-'90s. It's a very serious issue that was confronting the people of Queens at the time, and it continues to be. I remember at the time we started it, there was a a case where there was a hearing going on, and a judge let out the defendant, who was estranged from his wife and his two sons, and he let it out over the uh, people's objection. And then we found the wife and the two sons in the house with their heads chopped off with an axe. We have to be very careful when we deal with violent crime, with violent criminals. Unfortunately, there are people that must be incarcerated because the DA's main job is public safety, to keep the public safe. We're going to have to wrap up.
3: Thank you.
6: Thank you. Thank you. So
5: so let me answer your question uh, directly and I, and I appreciate appreciate the John Pfaff Uh, Shout out, and everyone should read his book, Locked In. I had the opportunity to meet with him up at Fordham Law School to discuss his central thesis, which is, you cannot combat mass incarceration just through the low-hanging fruit of nonviolent misdemeanors. You must confront the issue of violence. Mass incarceration cannot be solved if we continue to exclude so-called violent acts from being eligible for reform. And look how that plays out in the criminal justice system. In the charging decisions, where we charge people, overcharge people for violent felonies, like when Khalif Browder was charged with a violent felony for, for allegedly stealing a backpack from someone. In bail decisions, where we exclude from supervised release people who are charged with violent crimes. Um, in diversion programs... We're going to have to wrap up. I will. Where drug and mental illness diversion programs are, are uh, excluded uh, or prevented from people who... I've been Thank accused you. of violent offenses. We have to accept that violence has to be included in criminal justice reform.
3: So I want to just ask a yes or no question for everybody, and you'll have opportunities through press releases afterwards to clarify your answer. But yes or no, under the current, um, current system in Queens, do you think sentences for violent crime are too long in Queens right now, yes or no? <laughs> Just start, yeah. Okay, for-
4: yes. Yes.
6: Yes. In general?
4: <laughs> Ms. Luga? Uh,
6: I don't know how you can answer that. Okay. I don't know how you can answer that.
3: Uh, Ms. Lugo? Yes. Absolutely. Thanks.
6: And we have
2: uh, one more yes or no question before we get to a community leader question. We're going to start with Mr. Nieves this time. This is from a sponsor group, a yes or no question, um, and goes back to the issue of, of violent crime. Yes or no, will you commit to the following tonight? Prosecutors in courts across New York still often criminalize survivors of domestic and sexual violence will you make a commitment to decline to prosecute for self-defense and acts of survival in response to domestic and interpersonal violence yes
7: <laughs> yes
6: yes definitely
4: I'm not sure who wouldn't
2: okay yes i'll take that as a yes Okay, we are gonna ask our first community leader. We've got four community leader questions uh, on the docket and we're gonna start to get to those now. Our first community leader to ask a question is Solomon from Vocal, New York. Solomon here. Come on up. Come right over to the podium here. Yes, it's a good workout. Here, you can actually take this mic. Good evening, everyone. I'm Solomon.
9: I'm with Vocal New York, an uh, organization from, that's Brooklyn-based that works with communities who are impacted by very traumatic issues, voices of community activists and leaders. And I am here on behalf of our civil rights union in Queens and one of our leaders who couldn't be here today uh, due to a medical emergency. His name is Peter Thomas, and he had a question uh, along with uh, many other other people who are part of the Civil Rights Union around wrongful conviction. And I'm just gonna read what he wrote. Hi, my name is Peter Thomas. I was wrongfully convicted of robbery in 1995 and spent 19 years at 14 facilities. The ADA who prosecuted my case, Michelle Goldstein, withheld exculpatory evidence. She went on to prosecute homicides after my case and again withheld exculpatory evidence in a drive-by shooting the year after my case. She is now the Deputy Chief, the Deputy Bureau Chief of the Gang Violence and Hate Crimes Bureau. So, what deterrence will you put in place for police and prosecutorial misconduct, including reversals of cases of Brady violations, and what would be the career consequences for ADAs? Thank you.
2: Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. So we're going to start this round uh, with Ms. Lugo.
7: Thank you. Well, as the first Latina in the Nassau County District Attorney's Office, you could imagine that it was an uphill battle because I looked different from everybody, and I spoke differently from everybody. And um, so when it comes to prosecutorial misconduct, I've seen it firsthand. They can't interpret the victim because there's no interpreter. So what happens? The defendant gets a plea bargain. And so you have to monitor all of your ADAs. You have to supervise them carefully. And if they do um, do something wrong, you have to consider demoting them or disciplining them appropriately. There will be no tolerance for discrimination when I'm the Queen's DA. Diversity and inclusion and respect for everyone will be in my office fair, and firm prosecutions with compassion and mercy, but discrimination and treatment of different people just because they're a different color, look different, will not be tolerated. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Mr. Nieves.
8: If an assistant district attorney violates his oath and ethical duties in my office, he'll be fired, He or she will be fired, without a doubt. But to prevent that type of, uh, and to monitor that type of conduct, what I would do is, first, for police misconduct, I'll create a civil rights bureau that will engage investigations and prosecutions of police misconduct, and including excessive force. I will create a professional responsibility and ethics unit that will look at our prosecutors to make sure that any complaints of ethical misconduct Conduct of Brady violations are thoroughly investigated, and those individuals are terminated if they found to be to have done that. And for the individuals, and for the individuals who have been convicted of a crime, I'm going to create a conviction review unit. But not only a conviction review unit, but an independent advisory council to that unit, made up of criminal justice reform organizations, community leaders, clergy, and those individuals who have been wrongfully convicted and exonerated to make sure that we prevent wrongful convictions
2: in the future, thank you. Thank you, Ms. Caban.
0: Uh, yes, so t- to address the question of wrongful conviction, withholding exculpatory evidence deterrence for police and ADA's misconduct, one, we have to make it untenable for bad police officers and bad district attorneys to stay employed. So in terms of police officer misconduct, we don't wait for 50A to be repealed. We publish that list of bad officers. We make sure that we're declining every prosecution that comes in of an officer who has a history of misconduct. It- we cannot rely on their testimony. We cannot go forward with those prosecutions. In addition to that, we need to retrain our district attorneys, because the Brady Rule has been completely gutted. Um, it's this idea that the DAs are the gatekeeper of what is, or may or may not be exculpatory evidence. But that's not what the law is. The law is, is that there's a piece of information that could potentially be exculpatory, you hand it over, and it's for the defense attorney to decide how to use it. You must err on that side of caution, and that—that that is not what's happening in our Just, department.
2: Just very quickly, um, when you say publish a list of those bad officers, can you be very sp- specific and brief, though, in what you mean by that?
0: Yes. So right now, public defense uh, offices, they keep a list within their offices. They know and keep track of some of who these bad officers are so that they can help combat um, in cases where they know that these officers are going to have trouble or have problems Um Testifying. What we need to do is hand over those records immediately. There's nothing in the law saying that we can't do it. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be releasing that to the public
4: as well.
2: Thank you. Miss Katz. <clears throat>
4: So justice can't <laughs> depend on who someone is, whether they're a police officer or whether they're a district attorney. You can't have a higher standard of justice for them and others for other people. Um, it's the reason I didn't oppose the Oversight Committee when it comes to district attorneys. But any district attorney that is withholding exculpatory evidence means that they're not following my policies and my programs, because I will make it clear on day one that that is behavior that will not be stood for at the DA's office. They have to fulfill the mission that I set, the programs and the policies that i I set for this office. And, you know, I think everyone's right. You need a conviction integrity unit like I spoke about in my opening. And that conviction integrity unit for that very reason, needs to have an ADA on it that did not prosecute the original case. Because you need fresh eyes to look at the prosecution. You need fresh eyes to look at the evidence that was given to the defense. And by the way, when they gave it to the defense, because if they gave it right at the beginning of trial or right after the bail uh, discussions or right after arraignment, it makes a huge difference in how you prepare your case. So. Forty-five seconds is very short.
2: We know. We know. know.
5: Trying to get to a lot.
4: Trying to talk fast,
5: Mr. Lantzman. Thank you. Let's understand just how serious a problem wrongful convictions are in Queens. From my committee had a hearing on wrongful convictions in Queens from 1985 to 2017. Appellate courts have found over 118 in 118 cases misconduct by prosecutors from the Queen's DA's office, resulting in 107 reversals and 25 outright exonerations. All of the reforms, or so many of the reforms that we're talking about here this evening are geared towards preventing (coughs) wrongful convictions. You put someone in jail because they can't afford cash bail, they're going to plead out. Not every wrongful conviction is a wrongful conviction for murder. There are plenty of people who get wrongfully convicted for lesser offenses, but they'll do anything to get out of Rikers Island. We need to have a code of ethics. We will have a code of ethics in the Queens District Attorney's Office, as I wrote about in the New York Law Journal, that is much broader than what attorneys currently have to adhere Thank to. You. And that uh, takes account of the fact that prosecutors have special responsibilities when it comes to Brady. Thank you. Plea negotiations. Mr. Lasak.
6: Yes, we're all talking about things here like it's an academic exercise. I'm the only one sitting up here who actually, on his own, exonerated men that were wrongfully convicted. And I did it as an executive DA And I did it because I was asked to take a look at cases by Seymour James, the head of legal aid, who came to see me, to ask me to look at this. I have a reputation of being tough, but fair. And I exonerated his client. I exonerated about 20 men who were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not convict. They did not commit. And that was a very unpopular position to take back before anyone ever thought of the term Mr. conviction Le- integrity unit. Mr. I Le- did
2: that, yes. I'm, 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 I think it's good for everybody to hear that. I'm sure people uh, appreciate that. But the question was about deterrence and consequences deterrence. that you put into place. Just 20 more seconds.
6: Anyone, anyone that worked for me knew that they had to play by the rules, no one hid evidence. No one did anything like that. They knew there would be hell to pay if they did that under my watch. Because the worst thing you can do is not play by the rules and allow an innocent person to get convicted of something they did not commit. That is hell, and that is wrong, and I would never put up with it. I didn't do it for 39 years.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
6: All right, our community leaders
2: from Make the Road, New York, for the next question, Jennifer Orellana and Jocelyn Castillo. Please come up. Hola. Oh, yeah. Those mics are turned off. Come on up.
1: Mi nombre es Jocelyn Castillo, soy una mujer trans y estoy aquí porque me preocupa la situación actual de las trabajadoras sexuales, especialmente porque yo también soy sexo servidora. La comunidad de color en la ciudad de Nueva York han sido vigiladas por la policía constantemente, criminalizadas y deportadas por ser parte de la industria del sexo servicio, particularmente impactando a las mujeres translatinas del área de Jackson Heights.
10: Thank um. Uh, I'm going interpreter for uh, Jocelyn Castillo so my name is Biannna Garcia TGNC organizer at Mector road and I'm here to um, interpretation purposes so my name is Vianne, uh, my name is Jocelyn Castillo I'm a trans woman and I'm here because I'm worried about the current situation of sex work um, sex workers especially because I'm a sex worker communities of color in New York City have been constantly profiled discriminate um, criminalized and deported for being sex workers particularly, impacting trans, Latinas, women in Jackson Heights. Hola, buenas noches. Mi nombre es Jennifer Lorellana. Soy otra mujer trans, trabajadora sexual, al igual que mi hermana Jocelyn. También me preocupa nuestra realidad. Así que mi pregunta es la siguiente. ¿Cuál es la posición actual en la despenalización completa del sexo-servicio, incluso rehusarme a dar cargos para procesar a las trabajadoras sexuales, clientes, miembros de familia... parejas y caseros que proveen servicios y atención a las trabajadoras sexuales. My name is Jennifer Orellana, and I'm also a trans woman. And same as my sister, Jocelyn, I'm also concerned about um, our reality. So many que- my question is, what is your current position on full discrimination of sex work, including refusing to give charges to prosecute sex worker, clients, family members, couples, and landlords who provide services and care of sex worker? Thank you.
2: Thank you. And we're going to start this round with uh, Mr. Lasek. And again, uh, I'll just repeat uh, the question, which is, what is your position on the full decriminalization of sex work, including declining to prosecute sex workers, clients of sex sex workers, family members, partners, and landlords that provide services and care to sex workers?
6: The only problem with that is, you know, there's citizens in the county who are concerned about sex work out on the street, and they don't like their block to be, you know, the focal point of that type of a trade. I have no problem decriminalizing it, but how do you get rid of the problem on the street? And Ms. Lugo,
7: I would um, consider decriminalizing it with a pro a diversion program instead of. Um, prosecuting the crime, but also ensuring that there is no sex trafficking, there's no human trafficking involved, that the sex workers get proper treatment and care, like the Voces a Latinas organization in Queens that provides free HIV testing to protect the, all communities. And um, definitely would consider it, but because it's a crime, it's not a violent crime, it's, um, and it's a, a crime that's Prosecuted within our system, and people go to jail for no reason. Um, so I would seriously, seriously consider decriminalizing it.
2: Mr. Nieves. First,
8: thank you very much for your I will not uh, prosecute, I would decline to prosecute sex, sex workers. I think that those individuals that engage in that conduct, it's a non-criminal, it's a non-violent crime, it's a consensual crime, and I'm not going to waste the resources of the district attorney's office focusing on those uh, crimes. I'd rather fo- focus on violent crimes than you know, crimes related to sex work. However, and I also support the statewide legislation currently in Albany decriminalizing sex work. I think that's great legislation. We need to decriminalize this conduct and focus on public safety, which is really focusing on violent crime. In addition to that, um, I'm going to create a human trafficking unit because unfortunately, not all uh, participants in that uh, field are voluntary. And when when it involves human trafficking, I'm going to make sure
2: that's dealt with. Ms. Caban?
0: Yes, I will decline to prosecute all offenses related to sex work, including the prosecution of of customers and landlords. Um, as a queer Latina, I understand that our, our trans um, communities of color are disproportionately affected by these laws. I understand that sex work is work, and there are spaces of inequity that bring barriers in terms of health care, employment, and, and and housing situations, and that's what brings some folks to the work. It also, our economy doesn't work for everybody, and this is a way that folks can support their families. But, but through full decriminalization, that's how you create a space where you can actually target sex trafficking so that folks who are experiencing harm can reach out and get help, whether it's health care or reach out to law enforcement, um, because we certainly can be criminalizing assaultive behavior or other things that are against the law. Um,
4: we need Thank to you. protect our, our, our trans uh, and sex work communities. Ms. Katz. You need to protect the entire sex world. community. <laughs> um, you know, right now in Queens, uh, sex trafficked. Uh, people are actually put into another diversion program, um, APA. So they are sent for diversion programs, for mental health services, for drug addiction, to make sure that they can get away from what I call the houses of abuse that they are in right now. And the resources of the district attorney's office needs to go not not only to the diversion of sex workers and sex-trafficked women uh, and transgender. Um, They also need to make sure that we reach people before they actually get caught up in the system. The DA's office needs to be a partner in our communities so that sex workers know that there's alternatives and there's people and in an infrastructure there that can get them out of the houses of abuse, get them out from under control under the control of other people, and to make sure that they know that there are other paths that they can follow. and many times they don't believe that and we need to make sure that they do.
2: Forgive me if I missed at the beginning of your answer. Did you give a, a clear uh, definitive answer on how you would approach those prosecutions?
4: Yes, they would be diverted into the part that's already doing it now, um, human trafficking courthouse, Um, and they'd be diverted into there, and my point is that you really need to make sure it's not only about not prosecuting, it's also about getting the services to pull the people away from the houses of abuse that they are in now. Simply not prosecuting, which I hear you is great, but you need to make sure that the recidivism is not there, that they know there's other choices, that they know there's an infrastructure in place to help them, and that you get them away from the life that feels like it keeps pulling them in.
5: Thank you, Mr. Lantzman. Thank you. Look, we're not gonna be prosecuting individuals for prostitution. For those who do engage in that work voluntarily, that's their business. For those who are not in that work voluntarily and are trafficked and are engaged in that work through duress or coercion, why would you victimize them again by prosecuting them? We provide funding to women who are in the human trafficking court so they can get services that they need instead of getting into, instead of going into jail. The question is, how far do you go Do you prosecute johns? Do you prosecute promoters? Do you prosecute, you know, the the prostitution laws start with an individual who's engaged in prostitution and there's a continuum all the way into the laws that prohibit and criminalize actual trafficking as district attorney. I am going to focus on combating trafficking and traffickers.
2: Thank you.
3: All right. So let's talk about bail. (laughs) Uh, I think most of you um, have stated that you are in favor of some form of bail reform, but I want to be really specific. <laughs> and where it's helpful, it, it, it doesn't hurt us to know where there's real differences, respectfully pointing out those differences, because I think people want to understand those differences. So we have a, a little bit of a moment to get into that, if, there, um, if, if you can cl- point out differences. So, pl- so can you clarify for the audience? Assume nothing changes in Albany, which, uh, for for purposes of if nothing changes, given current law, the enormous discretion you have, what offenses, and please be specific, will be presumptively released on recognizance? And where are we
0: starting here?
2: Uh, We can actually start back in the beginning again with Ms. Caban.
0: Okay. Uh, Sure. So I I just want to start with, I make a commitment to not ask for cash bail. In terms of of who presumptively will be released, we need to be releasing to the fullest extent of of the law, right? And that means that there is a wide spectrum on on how we release. Maybe we release somebody with no conditions. Maybe we release somebody with a disposable cell phone and... and, and reminders on how to get to court. Maybe we release folks with uh, transportation services. Maybe we release folks into shelter services or um, other supportive services, but we need to be releasing folks as often as we possibly can. And that includes for... um, situations of, of certain violence as well. There are, and we have to look at the facts of the case, right? So for example, burglary in the second degree is a violent crime. Burglary in the second degree also means that you could have stolen some Amazon packages from the lobby of a building. Does that mean that you are not going to release somebody? That makes no sense. Um, so it's really important to, again, release the full extent of the law and preserve that presumption of innocence. <laughs> Ms.
4: Katz. I agree. I agree 100%. I think that Ms. Caban is right. Um, but the one caveat I would make is the presumption is going to be no cash bail for any misdemeanor, but also for nonviolent felonies. And I think it's important to note, this is not meant to be a punishment. Bail is simply supposed to make sure that you show up at your court date. If there's nothing in your record that shows that you won't show up, that you have a history of not coming to your case dates, if you have a history of being convicted, if um, there is some danger where, even if there is danger, by the way, to the victims or the witnesses, you should have ways to be able to either make sure that there is cell phone, that there are maybe ankle bracelets, uh, mental health services, Uh, You know, all of the services that are needed for drug addiction. So, I do think the presumption needs to be for misdemeanors and nonviolent felons not to ask for cash bail. But at the same time, we need to lobby Albany for a better system for the entire state.
5: (laughs) Thank you. So, let's be real clear I am never going to ask for cash bail in any circumstance whatsoever, period, full stop. We are going to expand eligibility and presumption for released on your own recognizance to the maximum extent permitted by law. For people who present a flight risk, we're going to expand supervised release, which we have done already in the City Council. And we have to explode the myth. And I will say, to a certain extent, the, the, the lack of candor. Virtually no one is sitting on Rikers Island because they, haven't paid, they can't pay, um, because they're there on misdemeanor cash bail. Virtually no one. Half the people on Rikers Island who are awaiting trial are there because they, are, they have been charged with a violent felony and cannot pay cash bail. You know who's charged with a violent felony couldn't pay cash bail? Khalif Browder. Three years in Rikers, two years in solitary confinement because you couldn't come up with $3,000 cash bail. So you either believe that nobody should be sitting in jail because they don't have money in their pocket and you stop playing games with this distinction between misdemeanors and low, uh, nonviolent felonies. Will you commit to not asking for cash bail ever? That is my commitment.
3: And, and Ms. Katz, just uh, just to clarify for your position,
4: um, right. do you share Mr. Lanceman's views? Yeah, there should be or- no cash bail at all. The difference is, though, for misdemeanors or nonviolent felonies, I think the presumption should be that people should be released on their own recognizance. I think for other crimes, you need to look at what the circumstances are to see if there's supervised release, to see if there's uh, drug addiction needed, to see if there's mental health uh, you know, uh, help needed. So I, I think no, I that's have- right, cash. I- Bail. I to clarify no that. for
6: it. yeah uh, Mr. No. Lasek. I agree there should be no cash bail for minor nonviolent offenses. When I was in the DA's office, I always had a rule that if you weren't going to seek jail time at the end of the case, you had no business seeking bail at the beginning of the case. That was just a ploy that prosecutors sometimes utilize to squeeze a plea out of somebody. I would not allow that as far as violent Cases, three factors when a judge is going to determine bail. Three factors are the severity of the offense, the criminal record of the person, and any history of warrants or not appearing in court. Those are the three factors that are utilized by a judge when we, when I used to set bail, when judges set bail. Those factors are are important, and I think if you're not going to have cash bail, then you're going to have to remand people that are charged with violent offenses <laughs> unless there's a reason not to. Okay? There has to be... Okay, some... We're going to
7: have to wrap up. Miss Luca. <laughs> I would... Um... Look at the case, case by case basis, but the cases that I would specifically not request cash bail are nonviolent offenses, criminal mischief, petty larceny, uh, spitting on the sidewalk, loitering, open, uh, walking around with an open beer can that really shouldn't even be prosecuted. However, if it's a drug case, and you have like an El Chapo, right, who has a lot of money and a lot of property, I would certainly set bail. Why? Because he has the power to continue his entire operation. Instead, let him put up the money, or that person put up the money so we can put at least some type of stop to it. But drug cases, low-level drug cases, possession, absolutely no cash bail, and we have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. Thank you. Mr. Nieves. Our
8: system is based on the presumption of innocence and based on that principle we should not hold people in incarceration simply because they cannot pay or buy their freedom. So I will not ask for cash bail on all offenses and that's all offenses. Instead what we will do as as the district attorney we will um, secure people's return by appearance bonds whether it be unsecured secured or partially secured um, because the purpose of bail and the purpose of of you know the, the the intent of bail was to to secure the return of the person accused of a crime to court. We can still do that through the appearance bond system under the CPL. It's there. We can use it. The judges know how to use it. So it's not something that we have to create. We just have to l- know the law and use it properly. Uh,
3: thank you.
2: <clears throat> I, I, we're going to um, continue along those lines. We'll start with Mr. Nieves and come back down this way. Um, can you state your position uh, as of today and going forward on the closure of the Rikers Island jails? And if you agree with the plan to uh, create and increase jail capacity in Queens?
8: You know, as a, as a prosecutor with the Department of Corrections, I actually walked the tiers of, of, of Rikers Island. So I know how toxic that environment is and how violent the atmosphere is, is in that, those facilities. And the atmosphere is violent, not just to the people incarcerated, but to the people who work there, the correction officers and the administrators. It's a bad situation all around. And when I walked those tiers, I saw that firsthand. Now, I support the closure of Rikers Island. I think Rikers Island needs to be closed, but I do not support the creation of super uh, community based facilities that are forty stories high and, and hold triple the amount of people. I think we what we need to do is we use to use we need to use existing facilities and we need to decarcerate Rikers Island. The answer to closing Rikers Island is not building more facilities to hold people it 's actually holding less people and decriminalizing and de de-incarcerating the population. Thank you, Ms. Lugo.
7: We definitely don't need any more jails. I've been to Rikers Island several times for clients and I actually for family members. I've been to Danamora. I've been to Greenberg uh, Correctional Facility. I've seen what happens there. It's similar to the movie Oz, if any of you have ever seen it. It's a, its its own private community where corruption is is... Prevalent, and um, we have to close it. However, I would leave it on the island, split it up into smaller jails, and stop sending people to jail. When I was a Nassau County Assistant DA, there wasn't room in the in the Nassau County Correctional Center to send people. There was no room, so the judge would say, "Wait a minute, what am I going to do with this guy? There's no room." They would call up the jail. There's no room. I guess we got to let him go.
2: Sorry, just to, no just room. to clarify on Rikers, you said close it, but also. Open facilities on Rikers Island?
7: Close it and leave it on Rikers Island and separate the nonviolent offenders from the violent offenders so there won't be any abuse. I have a client right now who's mentally ill, who's being sent there, and is probably, I'm going to have to file an order to show cause to make sure they don't send him there because he shouldn't be there. He's mentally ill and it's a nonviolent offense. Mr. Lasak.
6: This plan to close Rikers Island has been in progress for three years and we haven't got the first base with this whole plan yet. The uh, estimated cost is astronomical. Um, They moved the location in Manhattan. They moved the location in the Bronx. The people in Queens are outraged that they want to put a 40-story prison right in the middle of Kew Gardens. I think what they should do is look at Rikers Island. The problem there is the culture and the violence. There's room on that island, and there's room, there's two prisons on that island that are not occupied, they're closed. They could refurbish those and knock those down and build new ones. Nobody wants a prison in their backyard in any of the counties. Thank you.
5: Mr. Lansman. So I support the uh, close Rikers plan that exists full stop. I was proud to stand with Judge Lipman and the Lipman Commission and our friends from Just Leadership when that plan was announced. You cannot Reform Rikers Island. It is a violent dystopian nightmare that has been that way for decades. Some of you were at the debate that I had with the Queen's DA's office on this issue. And you must, you must build new community jails at the locations that have been identified, including in Queens, in Kew Gardens, where until recently there was a jail. It's necessary because the jails that exist in the boroughs are themselves dilapidated and outdated and and hotbeds of violence, but also because the people who are sitting on Rikers Island today, the people who are incarcerated, most of them haven't been convicted of anything yet. They have a right to be close to their families, to be close to home. We have, as taxpayers, have a right to not have to ship them back and forth to Rikers to court every day. I support the closed Rikers plan. And if you cannot have muster the courage to tell some people Thank in you. a neighborhood that we're going to have to reopen a jail that's been in your community Thank for you. decades, I really question your commitment to criminal justice. Thank you, justice. Ms.
4: Katz. So, 78%, last I could find, 78% of the people on Rikers were awaiting trial. A third of them A third of the people on Rikers were there for misdemeanors. But the first thing we need to do is lower the population at Rikers. There are a lot of diversion programs that we have here that are just not getting the resources and the funding that they need. And I'll give you an example of what's going on right now. In Brooklyn and Manhattan and on Staten Island, there's an interim order by the police department to divert everyone who's getting arrested for criminal possession of a controlled substance. Queens chose not to be part of that. So they chose not to be part of a diversion program that could lessen the population at Rikers on day one that they put that into place. So I am foreclosing Rikers. I think the culture needs to change. I think we need to go to the community, figure out where the jails need to be. But you can't leave everyone on Rikers with the culture of violence that's there and the inequity and the unfairness while also not lowering the population of everyone that is going there.
2: Thank you. And Ms. Caban.
4: Yes, thank you. We need
0: to close Rikers, and we can do it a lot faster than what the city is proposing. It is um, ridiculous that uh, their plan is, is this 10-year plan. When you change those metrics of success and say our goals are to reduce recidivism, um, decarcerate, and apply the law fairly and, and equitably across racial and class lines, when you stop going after that low-hanging fruit, you're able to decarcerate and decarcerate fast. But beyond that, I do not support the new jails because what happens is that when you build cages, you fill them. And we're talking about these large buildings with four to 4,000 to 5,000 beds. What we need to be investing in is transitional housing, places where people can get an education, can earn minimum wage, can get the services they need, the medical care that they need to prepare them for re-entering their communities because anyone who is detained or serving any sort of sentence, 97, 98% of those folks will re-enter our community at some point. And so we need to be taking care of folks. Thank you.
2: Thank you, and we're gonna now call up our next community leader. That's Andrea from the Rockaway Youth Task Force. Andrea, come on up. And we're gonna start the answers this round with uh, Mr. Lanceman. and here's Andrea.
0: Hello, so my name is Andrea Colon. I'm an organizer with the Rockaway Youth Task Force, and we're a youth-based advocacy organization based in Rockaway, um, who works to empower young people and make changes in our community. Uh, so police schools do not make schools any safer. They target and criminalize students of color. They put students through traumatic arrest processes and give out summonses for normal youth behavior. What actions will you take to end the school-to-prison pipeline right here in Queens?
5: Excellent question. Um- Thank you. And and the next <clears throat> has to take it upon himself or herself to end that school-to-prison pipeline. We've done a lot of work in the council to limit expulsions and suspensions, which, like everything else in the criminal justice system, in the disciplinary system, falls disproportionately on people of color. As district attorney, we are not going to be prosecuting these low-level offenses that come out of schools, scuffles, vandalism, um, kids acting out. Those should be handled handled inside the schools with guidance counselors, not with prosecutors. I'm proud to fund um, a number of um, uh, restorative justice programs that keep young people out of the criminal justice the, Queen, the criminal justice system, the Queen's Youth Court, and we're going to continue to do that work when I am the district attorney. Thank you. Mr. Lasek.
6: Yes, we have to expand our programs where we bring schools into the courthouse to see a trial, to see a hearing. We have to bridge the gap between a community and a courthouse so they don't look upon the courthouse as a big building where their friends go in the morning and they never see them again for (coughs) a year or two after that. We have to get that out of their minds, that vision out of their minds, and we have to educate the young kids and the police in the schools. Um, The DA's office has nothing to do with why, why they're there, if the Board of Education wants them there, uh, that's their business, all right? But as far as the uh, bridge and the gap, that's what I think is important, and I will be glad to expand any program that will educate the young kids.
3: Thank you.
2: Mr. Lacey. just quickly, so do you have any opinion on the, the level of, of police that are in schools at this time? Any opinion? Yes. No. Okay, Ms. Lugo.
3: I actually had a follow-up question for Mr. Lanceman. Um, so, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is scuffle uh, a crime that you're referring to? <laughs>
5: no, but I. So, I so, use
3: so, that. so, so, but, but in terms of accountability, you said you wouldn't prosecute scuffles, which imply that there are things that you would prosecute. Oh, So, seriously. so what? So what are the? What is the line um, for you? Well,
5: I mean, I mean, serious violence. I mean, God forbid there's 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 a shooting, there's a murder, there's there's a rape. Those are going to be handled in the criminal justice system. Now, thanks to the the raise the age law, which I supported.
3: But, but yeah, just just so so the line is uh, any violent crime you would prosecute? No, no, not any okay. violent
5: crime, because again, in, under the state penal law, we define violence extraordinarily yeah, okay. broadly, Thank right? You. Yeah, I just Thank wanted you. to
7: clarify. Thank you. Ms. Lugo? Yes. Um, again, personal experience and firsthand knowledge. I went to a school where the guys were always putting off the lights in the basement in the music class, and then they will go after the girls and fill them up. So as a result, I ended up in the dean's office a lot because I said, I'm not going to that class if you can't police that activity. On the other hand, I defended a young man who brought a box cutter to school because he needed to do a project, did not speak any, Eng- his mother didn't speak any English. All she understood was that he had to bring a box cutter to, to do a project in school. They were going to suspend him. They did not suspend him because someone was, had the money to, to hire a private lawyer to defend him. The Department of Education should handle these cases. If it's a violent case with somebody's, you know, violently injured, then it should go to, the, D, to um, the, D, the police and the DA's office. But low-level things that are being done, they have to be handled by the Department of Education.
2: Mr. Nieves.
8: I think the schools, our schools, public and and otherwise, are over policed. You know, I went to Frank and K. Lane when I was a young man, and when I remember going there, I don't remember the the over policing, all the blue uniforms and and metal detectors. I go there every year now to talk to the kids and to tell them they have better options no matter what their circumstances are. When I step into Frank and K. Lane, it reminds me of Rikers Island, because you have metal detectors, you have blue uniforms all over the place, and it it has a feel of an institution, not a learning institution, but an incarcerated institution. And I think that's wrong. We have to stop the school-prison uh, pipeline. And the way we do that, we treat kids like kids. We decline to prosecute low-level offenses that occur in schools. We make sure that um, children are, uh, our kids are diverted from the criminal justice system, given the opportunity to turn their life around and not be saddled with a criminal conviction for the rest of their life.
3: Thank you. Do you have, uh, just to follow up also, and Ms. Lugo, if you wanted to jump in, you can as well, but like the, the line between what a low-level offense is and and not?
8: The low-level offense is a misdemeanor offense.
3: That, okay, and that's what you mean. Yeah,
8: a misdemeanor offense, and if it's a felony, then we're going to treat kids like kids and make sure those cases are dealt with in family court because it'll raise the age.
7: Okay. I was assaulted by three girls in fifth grade. But that's not, but I wasn't in seriously injured, so assaults with non, no injuries, no serious injuries, I would not um, prosecute. However, there are injuries, and I've seen teachers beat up seriously. Those I would send to the DA's office to prosecute. Ms. Caban? We need
0: to get police officers out of our schools. We need to make sure that first responders or folks that are in the schools are not an entity that have a monopoly on violence. And when we talk about um, the criminalization of our students, particularly uh, disproportionately our black and brown students, it starts before the arrest. So we need to get rid of things like zero tolerance that is weaponized against certain communities, again, low-income black and brown communities, um, and engage in things like restorative justice and divest from 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 prosecution and invest in our schools, providing them with the funding and the tools they need for different programming that actually reduces violent and bad behavior um, and helps change the behavior. So we should, wherever possible, be declining to to prosecute children and giving them the things that they need to be successful, whether it is food, whether it is stability
4: at home, whether it is services. Thank
2: Thank you. Ms. Katz.
4: I went to Hillcrest High School, and I remember there was a stabbing in Hillcrest at the time that I was there, and it had such a dampening effect on the entire school when the police officers were walking up and down the hallways. So having said that, we've been very involved with a lot of the violence intervention programs in the borough of Queens, and I do think that if you catch children when they're that age, in junior high school and in high school, with diversion programs, with drug abuse programs, with mental illness, but also make sure that they have role models and mentors that can go into the school and, actually show them that the path is not clear, show them that they can make a difference in people's lives, show them that even if they have a record, even if they run into trouble, that you can lift yourself up and actually make a better life for themselves. I think a lot of young people don't realize that those paths exist and that choices are there. But to have police officers in our school, I think you need to make sure that, number one, that there is something you're reacting to immediately. It can't be a regular thing. It cannot be the way our high school kids have to go to school in the city of New York. And I refuse to believe it's the only answer.
2: Thank you. So that last part just indicates you do think there are often too many police officers so, in schools?
4: I absolutely think there's too many police officers in school, and I think the reason I think that and the reason that there is is because our diversion programs right now are not working to the fullest extent that they possibly thank can. We have community groups out you. there that are on their own doing it every single day without any support from the district attorney's office, and that's what's going to happen.
2: I think we're actually going to start with you again, but uh, Zephyr is going to ask uh, a question.
4: All right. This is the law professor question, a hypothetical
3: Um, so police officers through a legitimate stop have found both a small amount of drugs on a person but also an unregistered gun there's no evidence that the gun has been used in commission of a crime nor that the person has been previously convicted of any gun crime how would your office handle a case like that
4: you mean how would we prosecute? How would we prosecute, divert, or deal with exactly. the individual or yep. with the persons in the car? Uh, with the uh, person who was found, they found a small
3: amount of drugs and an unregistered gun. So I think it's important, right? Because right now, all too often, just, just
2: to clarify, you're not talking about a car stop, right? You're, you're talking about a street stop. Street stop. Yeah. Street stop. Oh, street
4: yeah. stop. yeah. Okay. Because in a car, I don't think everyone in the car should be prosecuted. No, no, I'm forever. just right. So I think the first thing we need to do is figure out what is going on in that particular case. Um, The gun needs to figure out if there's a history of that gun. You need to make sure that um, the pot is not prosecuted. I'm not going to prosecute it for low-level marijuana, period. That's not going to happen. So it's really about the gun. And guns are a serious issue in the city of New York. They're a serious issue in the United States So in the hypothetical, no evidence that the gun had been used in a commission of a crime,
3: nor has the person been previously convicted of a gun crime. (laughs)
4: I think it's too case specific. You have to bring you have to bring them in. You have to make sure about the gun's history. You have to do diversion every chance that you can possibly get. But at the end of the day let me just say this. Guns are a serious matter in the United States of America. My children watch people w- walking out of gun- of high schools every single thanks. month or so with their hands on top of each other's shoulders. Because so so I'm
3: going to keep people on the hypo just, just as a way to understand how you would think
4: about it. I wouldn't prosecute for the pot, and the gun I would take very seriously. Okay, thanks.
5: Uh, Mr. Lansman? Oh, um, gun offenses are very serious. There are parts of this city where shootings are up. And um, but nonetheless, every person who ends up in my office um, is going to be evaluated and measured and treated based on their own individual circumstances. No person is going to be, ineligible for an appropriate diversion program. They're not going to be...
3: So to be precise, what circumstances, given the two facts I've given you, are is the gun hasn't been used in the commission of a crime and there's no evidence um, that this person has been previously convicted of a gun crime, what circumstances would lead you to prosecute? (laughs) Or not to prosecute?
5: Sure. Um, If if the person had um, a history of uh, drug trafficking and there was reason to believe that um, this gun was going to be used in a drug offense, this uh, or, or or in some kind of um, drug trafficking uh, uh, scheme or crime, then that is very different from someone who doesn't have any criminal history whatsoever, um, maybe got caught up in gang activity, maybe was carrying that unarmed, um, un- un- unloaded weapon, un- 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 unregistered gun. Was it unloaded in the hypothetical?
3: Uh, uh, That's a big no. difference. <laughs> no.
5: <laughs> okay. That's a big difference. Um, yeah,
3: well, they were trying to figure out what are the factors. No, yeah. No, no. And the and factors. And we have to and, wrap up. And, and, so, and, yeah, thanks. Sure.
5: And, and was this person someone who's been the victim of of some kind of retaliatory gang violence that they oh. mistakenly thought they were carrying a gun to protect themselves? I think there might be a way in that circumstance to keep that person. Out of the criminal justice system.
3: Mr. Lacey.
6: It's an unloaded gun?
2: I, I think... Not telling us. We didn't say loaded or unloaded, so... These
3: are factors you that's can That's a factor, us. yeah. Yeah, you what? can tell us how you would deal with these factors. it's, oh, it's
6: a loaded gun. Mm-hmm. What time of the day is this? <laughs> S- seven. <laughs> at night or in the morning?
3: Seven at night. <laughs> I knew that was happening.
6: <laughs> All right. He's walking down the street with a friend? Yes. And where's the gun on him?
3: Uh-huh.
6: Front or back?
2: Explain to us some of your thinking. Yeah, so to explain Go ahead.
3: Thinking about, so it sounds to me like, just I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there are circumstances in which you would bring, it, bring a, a gun charge and circumstances in which you wouldn't. And what are the key factors for, you, for your office?
6: Is this kid, is he a kid? 20. Huh? 20. So he's not eligible for youthful offender treatment? No. Okay. Forget about the marijuana. I'd prosecute him for the gun, a loaded gun in the streets of New York City. Okay. Can you okay. think of any reason not to prosecute him?
3: That's what I'm asking. This is okay. the questions. And if, if unloaded, you would not bring a prosecution?
6: It would be a misdemeanor if okay. he doesn't have any bullets on him. Yeah. Um, Ms. Lugo.
7: Now, um, what was the original stop for? You said it was a legitimate stop. Um, it was, a le- you guys are doing, you're, you're coming back <laughs> and me the other way. I get it. <laughs>
3: um, so it was, a le- I said it was a legitimate stop and they found a small amount of drugs. So, um, uh, if the stop was for drugs, you might say that would be, uh, anyway. It's a legitimate stop, but they also find an unregistered gun. Assume the stop is not for for a gun um, having an unregistered gun.
7: Okay, so I mean, there was a lot of facts and circumstances that have to be considered, and the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Um, permits you, now it's a legitimate stop. So if you have the right to be uh, protected you know from um, government intervention, if it's a legitimate stop. So basically, it's a legitimate stop. You find a small amount of drugs. Depending on whether it's marijuana or cocaine, if it's marijuana, I would let it go. However, the gun, because there's no prior conviction, there's no prior history of gun use, I would also evaluate the neighborhood that the person is in. If it's a tough neighborhood and you need the gun, Look and see if the person does security work. Look at the type of person um, and the family background to see. And then all those factors I would consider before charging the the gun possession charge. Yes, guns are very dangerous. However, some people, if they have, some, some people have been stopped, and they need a gun for safety or for their jobs. And you have to also consider that as well. Mr. Nieves.
8: Well, assuming that the stop was legitimate, you know, first thing my assistant district attorneys will do is scrutinize the stop to make sure it was a legal stop. But having uh, the assumption that it's a legal stop. We have to look at the circumstances of the defendant, and I know this because I've prosecuted these cases. I was assigned to the gun part in the in the Brooklyn District Attorney's office, and the circumstances of the defendant are, are key because I had one case where an individual was about twenty years old, and he had been uh, caught with a loaded gun, so it's a C felony, and unfortunately, he also was a victim of uh, violence three times before. So I was able to investigate investigate that case, determine that he was a victim of gang violence. On three prior occasions, and that was the motivation for him to try to protect himself from the further from further violence. So you have to look at the circumstances of of, of the accused and make sure you're not just punishing an, an individual that has mitigating or extenuating situation.
0: Thank you.
2: One more, Ms. Miss, Miss Caban. Uh,
0: yes, um, I'm all for getting guns off the street. I, I think it's important to talk about what happens in Queens right now in gun cases, right? When somebody is uh, picked up um, at the airport with a gun, overwhelmingly it's a white person, for example, the DA's office reaches out to the defense attorney and says, hey, send us a good guy package and we'll offer you a violation right? Whereas when we have guns on the street, like with this stop, um, the DA's office currently will not, re- will refuse to make an offer less than two years upstate prison. And, and, Drawing those hard lines are completely inappropriate and, again, disproportionately marginalizes and oppresses our our black and brown communities. Um, Yes, you prosecute a gun case, but at the same time, it's about redefining what it means to prosecute, and that doesn't mean that you send somebody to jail um, necessarily, that you send somebody to state prison necessarily, but provide them every opportunity to, again, be in their communities um, and... and provide the support needed so that they're not cycling back into the, the system for any reason. So thank you.
2: Thank you. So we're gonna bring up, uh, we have about two more questions left in the, in the forum, but we're gonna bring up our last community leader question. Is Ms. Bell here? Oh, great. This is uh, Valerie Bell, mother of Sean Bell and of the Justice Committee, who's gonna ask our next question. And we're gonna start this round. We're going to start this round with Ms. Lugo and come towards uh, the moderators here. And here is Ms. Bell. Thank
1: you so much. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Valerie Bell. <clears throat> I'm the mother of Sean Bell, who was killed by NYPD in 2006. DA Brown prosecuted my son's case but failed to get a conviction. The prosecution was lax at times. I could not tell which side the prosecutors were on during the trial. There's a systematic conflict of interest with district attorneys investigate and, pr- and prosecute NYPD officers, because the DAs rely on the NYPD to do their jobs. <laughs> Question: What is your plan to address this conflict of interest and ensure that any investigations and prosecutions of NYPD officers for perjury, brutality, and other crimes are conducted by our? By, I'm sorry, by your office are done in a swift, <laughs> thorough, and unbiased manner.
2: Thank you. Ms. Lugo? Uh,
7: first of all, my sincerest condolences, Ms. Bell. I remember the case very well because it was um, use of super excessive force. And I, I feel really badly about that. And that's a problem that we have. A law enforcement community has to be educated. I lived um, for a time next to the police academy. And I've seen the young officers that come out of the police academy. They're afraid of their own lives. And so sometimes they're not trained properly and then they start shooting like in this case. You know, 50 bullet shots for one for one person? I mean, that's crazy. The police officers today have to be educated on how to deal with Communities of diverse backgrounds. They have to know how to respect. They have and, to know what's involved. And they cannot take advantage and abuse people. I would make it a requirement that every assistant DA in my office know the community they're prosecuting. Thank you. So if they live in Whitestone, they should get to know Jamaica and not be afraid. And the police officers should not be thank shooting you. people because they're afraid. They need to be trained.
6: Thank you. We're coming back in this direction this time. So Mr. Lacek... <laughs> 1985, I received a phone call from uh, Marvin Kornberg. His client was in the arraignment part, and he had burn marks all over him, and we started an investigation that became the stun gun investigation, and we wound up indicting three police officers, a sergeant, a lieutenant. The borough commander had to retire. The chief of patrol had to retire. On that case, we utilized the uh, investigators from the DA's office and they put the case together and we prosecuted those police officers. Miss Bell, my condolences to you. What I would recommend or what I would do is that I would utilize the DA's investigators on any case involving police officer some misconduct or any wrongdoing by a police officer to ensure that the NYPD is not involved in the case.
3: Do you think, uh, just a follow up, do you think the New York State Attorney General's office should have jurisdiction over any um, uh, case involving police misconduct?
6: <sighs> misconduct? Right now they have jurisdiction right now they have... when, when a, a civilian is killed by a member of the police department.
3: Right, but do you think it should be expanded for any case involving misconduct?
6: I don't see a need for that. I am glad that they have given the Attorney General the jurisdiction that they have. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Lanceman.
5: Thank you. Um, You know, of my many endorsements, I have to say that the one that I'm most proud of um, and is most meaningful to me um, is uh, Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner. And the reason that she supports me is because of my unyielding and relentless focus on combating police corruption, police misconduct. In the council I chair I sponsored the chokehold bill, which would make it a crime for an officer to perform a chokehold. I've had police commissioners and police brass in front of me countless times under oath, us grilling them and forcing them to change policies. In the in the district attorney's office, we're gonna have a separate unit that is dedicated to combating police misconduct, whether it's corruption, testifying, and police violence. They're going to be separate from the rest of the office, and we are going to treat everyone, police officers and citizens alike, the same, and everyone will be held accountable under the law.
2: Thank you, Ms. Katz.
4: Yeah, justice can't be different for police officers, for district attorneys. I mean, it almost should be higher, right, because they are given the public's trust. Um, I do think that the AG should uh, do the special prosecutions uh, against police officers when there is a, a death uh, what about a non? Yeah. But I also believe, and I, I would consider having a special prosecutor or having the AG determine whether any police brutality um, should actually be taken by a special prosecutor or stay in the DA's office. I would be very. So your open. line would be brutality, uh, Not just or any or police misconduct. I do think that there is always, always uh, a benefit to having a second set of eyes come into almost any case, and a good district attorney should never care that there's other eyes looking at it, which is why I believe transparency. In the office is one of the highlights that we need to accomplish in the district attorney's office. But at the same time, you need to make sure that it's not only brutality and it's not only the death of an individual by police. It's also a system in place to make sure that veracity is throughout the police department and it's not just perjury because perjury is when they're under oath it's got to always be when you're following a case from beginning to end arrest to the end that there is trust that there is truthfulness and that there are checks and balances to make sure you get that from the police department and from the DA's office. Ms. Caban, Uh, I believe in an independent prosecutor and not just
0: for um the the deaths or the killings of, of civilians, but I'm talking about any crime that's committed by somebody who wears a badge, right? We should make sure that any time uh, a police officer steps outside the, the role of their work, that they are prosecuted and held accountable. And it means being prosecuted and investigated by somebody who doesn't touch or have a relationship with the police officers on a daily basis. And so that goes from things like brutality <coughs> all the way down to to deaths, <coughs> <coughs> I'm sorry, excuse me. <coughs>
2: we'll come back to you for a final thought. We'll go to Mr. Nevis. Hey, this question is
8: personal to me because I was the deputy chief of the special investigations and prosecutions <coughs> unit of the attorney general's office. So I was in charge of prosecuting and investigating police officers who caused the death of unarmed civilians. And I believe that that, jurist, that unit and the jurisdiction of the attorney general, attorney general should be expanded to include all excessive force by all officers within the state of New York. We've done great Just to work. to be
3: clear, so your line would be excessive force?
8: Excessive force. All excessive force, whether it leads to a death or not.
3: So not, the, not other police misconduct?
8: Excessive force. Now, for for the testifying or, yeah, or like the, what, about what they call it, right, testifying, I think that the DA's office should prosecute those. I think that we have a, a very keen interest in prosecuting those cases because our integrity and our our name as a, as prosecutors rely on the testimony of police officers. And when an individual police officer lies on the stand and breaks his uh and, and breaks his, his his ethical obligations, we should prosecute them and make them. An so that other officers do not follow suit.
3: And do you support Ms. Caban's proposal of, of uh, releasing the names of officers um, who've been engaged in misconduct?
8: Was that part of the question?
3: No, we we'll just oh.
8: mix it up. <laughs> I, I missed something. <laughs> Releasing the names you said that earlier. That was that was from earlier. Yeah. Releasing the names of officers uh, to the to the public, I think, it is fine. Um, but we do have to respect the law, and the law right now is fifty A, and I support the repeal of the law. But we, as as law enforcement officers, we have to we have to respect it.
2: All right, we're we're into our final question of the night here. Uh, And if we have time, we'll sneak in closing statements, but we might not have time. Uh, And this question, we're going to start with Mr. Lasak. And the question is, how would you approach uh, using your prosecutorial power and your discretion in mitigating immigration consequences in charging, in plea deals, even post-conviction clearances? What would you do uh, if anything, to mitigate immigration consequences with your work.
6: First of all, from day one, I would hire an immigration law expert because I am not an immigration law expert. I would hire one, and any plea offer that is uh, come, any plea offer that is proposed by an assistant DA would have to be run by that immigration law expert to make sure that the plea will not jeopardize that person's status in our country for a nonviolent minor offense because I don't want to see an unnecessary deportation for a good hard-working person from a good family. They went out and did something silly one night. I don't want to see them jeopardize their status in this country, jeopardize and lead to an unnecessary deportation. As you know, it could be the difference between one year in jail and 364 years in jail as a Days. 64 days as a, uh, a sentence which could lead to deportation or allowing him to remain in the Thank country. You. Thank you. And we're going to go th- come this way again. Mr. Lantzman? Yes. Okay.
5: So I'm very proud of the work that we've done in in, in the council. We required that all the... Um, uh, attorneys representing people, defendants in uh, criminal summons court uh, had collateral consequences training so that they could properly advise people and not just have them pleading guilty to offenses that could get them deported. I was part of the movement to kick ice off of Rikers Island. We've expanded funding for legal services for immigrants facing deportation and removal um, uh, to the tunes of tens of, of millions of dollar, do, uh, dollars. And I think it's a disgrace that the Queens County District Attorney's Office ref- refuses to consider the immigration consequences to a defendant in making charging and plea offer decisions we funded a collateral consequences officer for Staten island we need to do the same here in queens county and i am going to work with the defense bar with the courts to follow up on a hearing that we did in the city council to do everything we can to keep thank ice out of our courthouses thank you protect our immigrants
2: thank you miss katz
4: As the borough president of Queens, there's 190 countries and 200 languages represented in in the borough of Queens. We have 48% of our population born outside the United States of America. The district attorney's office has to have plea neutral deals, which means that if you have deportation consequences, the person who is plea bargaining needs to know those consequences before they sign the plea bargain. And you also have to have plea uh, deportation neutral uh, charges. The charge against me shouldn't be worse than the charge against someone who's on a path to citizenship or undocumented or documented here and maybe has the deportation (coughs) consequences. It has to be neutral when it comes to the charges and to the bail. But I will tell you the history that we have in the borough president's office. We have 100 not-for-profits on our immigration task force. We've spoken out against the public charge, and we've worked with many immigration attorneys throughout the entire borough of Queens on domestic violence, on immigration issues, on workplace discrimination, and there's no reason that the district attorney's office can't continue to do that work.
2: Thank you. Just quickly, would you put in place a policy to seek the, the least uh, serious charge when you know uh, a deportation is, is at stake, potentially?
4: I, I think that we should have a policy of always trying to seek the least um, charge uh, for anybody who is charged. I think that we need to make sure that um, the highest punishments will not be used unless I actually approve of it. Thank you. And we stated that in our position papers already. Okay. Any plea bargain or any sentence at the highest level of time is going to have my personal approval.
2: Thank you. Ms. Kupon. Um
0: First off, until we abolish ICE, we need to take every action necessary to keep ICE out of our courtrooms. But in terms of... Um, Immigration consequences and collateral consequences. We need to know and be super vigilant. It's important to understand that it's not just charges and plea deals. So, there are many offenses that um, are crimes involving moral turpitude that could end up with somebody being deported or removed, which essentially starts a second prosecution with a second um, with a second detainment that could also lead to somebody being um, in a place where they will be persecuted. But what people don't know is that everything you say in court matters. So you might not even, you may even offer a plea deal, but you have to be really careful. If you, we put forth a report that talks about our client's struggles, those reports as part of the court um, file can be used in an immigration hearing, right? And that can cause somebody to be deported. If you use Thank the you. wrong words in court, that can lead to somebody being deported, even if they're convicted of nothing. And we have to be mindful of that as well to protect folks.
2: Thank you. Mr. Nevis. Yes,
8: what I will do is I will hire a team of immigration attorneys who advise not only my assistant district attorneys as to collateral immigration consequences of people accused of a crime, but also advise the victims and eyewitnesses. We have an entire population in our communities that's afraid to come forward, that's afraid to report crimes, and they're going on being victims of a crime without ever having justice for their name. And I think that's wrong, and that's why we need immigration attorneys at the DA's office, not just to advise our district attorneys, but also advise the victims on how to get T visas and U visas and our eyewitnesses. So I I support, and what I will do is hire a team of attorneys. I believe that ICE should be out of the courtrooms, and I want to do it three different ways. We can work as district attorneys with the defense counsel to give time-specific appearances for individuals. That way we disrupt and and we frustrate the, the surveillance of ICE. We can waive individuals' appearances. That way they don't have to endanger themselves to be incarcerated or detained by ICE, and we can also do things off the record, such as discovery, without having the individual come into court. Thank you. And Ms. Luco.
7: New York is a sanctuary city. I disagree with the current policy of the Queens DA's office that permits ICE to go into the courts. What I would do is I would set up an immigration unit, an immigration affairs bureau within the DA's office. And specifically, I would take it one step further, interpreters, because I've been in court. Where people are taking pleas and they have interpreters translating. Well, do you understand that when you uh, plead guilty to this crime, Mr. So and so, you can be deported? So, if the interpreter is not interpreting properly, and if the judges aren't vigilant, and if the defense attorneys are overworked, these legal aid attorneys who have 15 cases, 15 to 20 cases backed up, then The system is not working, so you have to have oversight of the immigration issue. You have to make sure that the interpreters are properly interpreting, and you have to have an immigration unit that permits. For example, Cy Vance, Manhattan DA's office, he has a bureau where you can open up, vacate a plea based on the fact that they didn't tell you about the immigration consequences and allow the person to stay here in this country. Thank
2: you. All right. Here's what we're gonna do. We're not gonna do full closing statements. We're gonna do one sentence closing statements. Give your one sentence. I encourage you to start with something like, I'm the only candidate in this race who. Uh, Your one sentence, and we're gonna start with Ms. Caban and go right down uh, to the end again. Uh, your one-sentence closing statement for the evening and uh, before they go, because what happens usually at these forums is at the last word of the last candidate, everybody starts heading for the hills, some sooner, uh, but before these one-sentence closing statements, just say thank. I'll just say thank you to all of you for being here especially. Uh, thank you for those watching elsewhere. Uh, thank you, obviously, to the candidates for being here. Thank you to the sponsors. Thank you to CUNY Law. Thank you, Zephyr Teach Out. Um, and thank you to the community leaders who came up and asked questions. That's not easy to do. And your one sentence uh, closing statements.
0: The decision that gets made in this race is. To the survival of our communities, and I am the only candidate who has spent my entire career taking a trauma-informed, holistic approach to fight for all of the reforms that are now the very popular and and new thing to be fighting for.
2: Thank you. Thank you, (laughs) Miss Katz.
4: I believe in justice for defendants, and I believe in justice for victims. I don't believe that they are mutually exclusive. I do believe that we can have a criminal justice system that provides both, and with my experience as the borough president in the assembly and the city council, and practicing years of law, I intend on bringing justice for both defendants and victims to the district attorney's office. Thank you.
5: Mr. Lantzman. Our criminal justice system is racist, it discriminates against poor people. It doesn't protect working people, women, immigrants, homeowners, or tenants. And I'm confident that I have the direct legal experience, the policy experience, and the will, the demonstrated will, to make radical transformative change happen to the criminal justice system in Queens. Thank you. Mr. Lasak.
6: I'm the only person up here who was the number two judge in the Supreme Court in Queens County and the number three prosecutor in the DA's office in Queens County. And I am the one who will be reform and change to the DA's office. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Lugo.
7: I'm the only candidate in this race who has been involved in the criminal justice system from both sides, representing people from both sides, and I'm the most qualified. With my prosecution background, my 35 years of a, as a trial attorney and representing communities of color and all communities with respect, true justice for all, and firm but fair with compassion and mercy, I will prosecute.
2: Thank you. And Mr. Nieves to round us out. Thank you
8: very much. I'm the only candidate here who has investigated and prosecuted police officers, has experienced the indignity and disrespect of discrimination in the criminal justice system. I'm the only candidate here who has served his country as a combat veteran, and I'm the only candidate here who has the life experience to motivate me to change the criminal justice system and the professional experience to make those changes happen. Thank you.
2: Thank you, and thank you all
3: again. All for an incredible uh, forum. Thank you for your time.